0: Are you looking for more connection and support within the Dressember community? You should consider leading a team for the 10th annual Dressember Style Challenge. It's going to be a special year, and we're hoping to make our biggest impact yet. Create your team at dressember.org fundraise. We have all the resources you need to be a part of changing the world, one dresser tie at a time.
1: Hello and welcome to Things Survivors Wish You Knew, a December podcast. You're listening to the podcast that passes the mic to survivors of human trafficking and commercial sexual exploitation to hear what it is survivors wish the rest of us knew. I'm your host Blythe Hill and along with my co-host Stephanie Schindler, we are so excited for you to hear our conversation with Chris Ash and Dunia Zalea in this episode. Chris Ash is the Survivor Leadership Program Manager at CAST LA. And Dunya Zalea is a community leader who uses her experiences to connect with others and advocate for change. Both people bring hope, energy, and graciously bold encouragement to our conversation about what a good model for trafficking rehabilitation services could look like. Because human trafficking is a heavy topic, please practice self-care before, during, and after listening to this podcast. Pause the show if you need to. We will be here when you're ready. If you suspect you or someone else is in a trafficking situation, please call 1-888-373-7888 or text 233-733. Chris and Dunia are leaders who have chosen to use their experience to inform aftercare practices for survivors of human trafficking. They have a way of correcting an unhelpful situation that leaves shame at the door and encourages listeners to do better for the survivors they're trying to help. We think you will be so glad you listened to this episode. Well, Chris, Dunya, it's such a joy to be able to have this conversation with you. We've really been looking forward to it. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having us.
1: Thank you. Yeah. And Chris, we've gotten to work with you a bit in the past, but. Um Dunia, we're we're newer friends with you and um thanks to Chris for for introducing us to you we're really excited to get to know you a bit more um on this in this conversation too. Thank
3: you. I'm excited actually to be here with you guys.
1: That's so good to hear. Yeah, I hope it's a, you know, you're like I said you're with friends, so um I hope it's a a just great and empowering conversation for you. And I think, I know that you both have a lot of gems of knowledge and insight to offer our community. So I'm really excited for for them to hear from you. Um, Why don't we kick things off by talking a bit about what services, when you think back on your experience, were most impactful to you? Um, I guess actually following immediate aftercare or more generally, what do aftercare services look like uh, in the anti-trafficking mm-hmm. space? So that those of us who have not received direct services in aftercare or the after aftercare can kind of understand what what's the current process and, and what do those services mm-hmm. look like in the anti-trafficking space?
2: Well, I know um, for me personally, I didn't get specific anti-trafficking services. I went through rape crisis centers and I did um, crisis services there and support groups there. And I later um, ended up sort of deciding I was ready to kind of check out in general and called a convent and told them I wanted to be a nun. Um, And they were like, no, sweetie, that's not how this works. Um, But I did go stay there for a few months in their guest house, and um, while it wasn't any kind of formal aftercare, one of the things that was really um, surprising to me there is that they treated me like a real human who was deserving of respect and not broken and who had things to say and contribute, and that was really, really powerful for me personally. Pass it off to (laughs) Dunya.
3: Um, For aftercare, I think right now in the anti-trafficking movement, there isn't really a lot, uh, which they should be, um, but, um, you know, being part of other programs and um, being part of, you know, um, homeboys industry, aftercare, what it looked like to us in that organization is being able to communicate and keep in contact with, you know, building during the time of treatment, a solid foundation um, and being able to keep in contact with them. So hoping that maybe we could build something, um, you know, in the aftercare being pioneers of a program and the anti-trafficking movement where we care to have something more solid for survivors to be able to continue working on themselves, you know, because there's Mm -hmm. nothing really there other than us telling our stories. Mm -hmm. I know Dunya and I too,
2: like we talked once about, it was really insightful. We were talking about how there's a lot in the trafficking aftercare for like crisis and there's case management. And then it's like, bloop. (laughs) Like everything just falls off and you're like, well, what now? Um, and like not there's not as many places to go and do things like continue building your computer and technology skills or um, ongoing ESL classes for those who want to get stronger at their English if they're in the U.S. Um, and professional stuff that's not just centered on telling stories. So like, what if you're not going to tell your story, but you want to be a trainer, your bio is going to look different. Like, how do you write a bio for that setting? Like just after case management, I know Dunya was telling me was a gap, but that it was something she got to experience in a different kind of program, that that extra support.
1: Yeah. So I hear you saying that like, basically right now in the anti-trafficking space, aftercare is very much just crisis management and then not much after that. Is that fair? Yes. And yeah, that's so there's a lot of I, gaps there.
2: Yeah, I Go know, ahead, like, um, I worked in a different movement for a while I worked in rape crisis services. And I know, in rape crisis services, we didn't have this concept after you've done your initial healing and your initial support that you need, that you like graduate from services, you don't really graduate, like, it's sort of like you you're like, I'm good now, and you kind of do your thing and then it might be a few years later something gets kicked out. you know, someone who abused you or assaulted you dies, or um, you have a family member who brings something up and you have to go to an event you're being fussed at for not going to an event where your abuser is or whatever, and suddenly you need services again, and that's not seen as like a a regression. It's seen as just like normal process of your life unfolding after trauma. Um, you know and I know Dunya, like even like just beyond the case management, did you want like I know some of the stuff that you were talking about um, was really interesting to me, the different kinds of supports beyond case management that you had access to.
3: Um, yes, I had mentorship, a lot of mentorship through the process and even now I still keep in contact with my mentor. Um, And stuff, sometimes I just have a little doubt in regards of just, you know, the simplest questions that you could think of. And sometimes I just don't know the answers right there and then. And am I able to, you know, reach out to that foundation that I built being in the program during my 18-month program at Homeboys Industry? um, I was able to, you know, because I was always a very timid person. So it was very hard for me to build those bonds, especially with women. Um, So during my AT program, I've learned to build bond with women. And sometimes it's still kind of hard, um, you know, just to trust um, people and especially women. But today I'm able to be able to see and be able to grow for them to help me grow and apply some of these, you know, some of these women are very knowledgeable in regards of you know, just life experiences, you know, they don't have to be women that have been trafficking or, you know, just women that are willing to give their time and being able to hold my hand through the process. So that's something that kind of helped me throughout, you know, and it's still helping me now. Mm -hmm.
2: I know too, another thing that we think about a lot is like ongoing, like economic and career empowerment is something that is one of the gaps beyond the case management um, we've talked about that. Um, Dunya and I talk about this stuff, and have talked about it a lot before, so mm-hmm. <laughs> i like, dropping past conversations and remembering, like, the economic empowerment and career development piece is really hard. Um, like, I, I know at my current job, we give away rounds of funding periodically, and there have been a few that we did during COVID. That were, um, that were like emergency crisis money-based. They weren't necessarily business expense or scholarships. They were just like based on the fact that so many of us lost income. So many survivors who had been starting to build their economic security lost jobs, lost income, lost contract opportunities during COVID, and were, um, were trying to figure out how to make ends meet. And when I first started at this job, the first round I reviewed, I remembered being surprised by how many survivors in the movement whose names I recognized were going through economic crisis years after their trafficking experience. Like these are people who, who really are seen by many in the movement as the leaders, the thought leaders, the change makers, the people really doing amazing survivor leadership. And then you find out some of the backstories and realize that economic struggle is real. And so, um, you know, I think part of that's a structural issue um, where a lot of times we think of survivor leaders as like consultants or contractors instead of really thinking about how to build them into like your program managers, your response managers. Um, You know, and I think part of it too is it's hard for survivors to know and learn how to navigate for themselves in the workplace because we're, we come from economic exploitation where someone tells us what to do and we do it and we don't even get paid. (laughs) And now we have someone who's actually paying us and there's a timidity, like a fear of asking for more or asking for too much, or I don't want to be the difficult employee because I actually am making money now, (laughs) you know, so I think we need um, more empowerment. Like we see, there's a nonprofit called Free From, and Free From does a lot of work with survivors of all forms of um, gender-based violence to help coach you on how to, like, how to hardball. <laughs> how do you play hardball to make sure you're getting paid well? How do you push back when someone's asking you to do more work than you're getting paid to do? Like, that's hard. I think that's another piece of it, and then. You know, the other pieces, I think sometimes there's an assumption that survivors who don't fit the mold or look a certain way or have a certain credential or certain degree or whatever, that they don't know what they're doing. And that's just not true because formal degree programs, that's not the only place you can learn skills.
0: Certainly. Um, I think that it is incredibly important to transfer the burden from Survivors to organizations and employers and coaches and trainers to say, um, We need to show you how valuable and worthy you are. Here is a fair living wage, and here is a skills program to help you move up the ladder in your career. Like that burden is not on. Survivors. And one model that we've seen work really well is Homeboy Industries, which Dunya has continued to mention as she is a wonderful partner there. And um, Homeboy Industries is a gang rehabilitation and reentry program that provides training and support to formerly gang involved and previously incarcerated people. Um, their wraparound healing services, uh, which are predominantly led by people with similar lived experiences to the folks that they're serving, uh, could really act as a model for anti-trafficking organizations um, in so many ways, but in particular, on how to empower folks that are going through this rehabilitation program to then become leaders within the program to help mentor folks and um, walk alongside people who they have a very keen understanding of like what they're going through. And I I know there's lots of ways that we can learn from homeboys. And I'd love to pass the mic to Dunya about um, what she's seen that's really worked when it comes to meeting people where they are on their healing journey.
3: Um, meeting people where they're at. Um, you know, during the time at Homeboys, you know, I I I struggled. I struggled a lot in the beginning um, because I was always willing just to work with, you know, my drug addiction, my domestic violence, but never did I want to talk about the skeleton in the closet, which was my trafficking. You know, being a C six survivor.
1: CSEC, or Commercial Sexual Exploitation of Children, is a commercial transaction that involves the sexual exploitation of a child or a person under the age of consent, which varies from state to state.
3: And um, being in a place where, you know, I've never heard someone else speak about this being here. It was very a shame. I was very ashamed and, you know... um, At times I was willing to give the program a chance because I am looking and I'm looking around in the rooms and I see some people and hear people and their success stories and how well they're doing and, you know, how they're going back to school. And, you know, this place is giving them that opportunity. And for me, it's like, um, you know, sometimes I was ready to receive and sometimes I'm not, you know, Um, but I do. And I always knew even during the time of my trafficking, I knew that, Life was something more than what I was going through, you know. Um, and during my stay there at my 18 month, you know, the first time, it took me a couple of times to fall on my face and understand that, you know, um, that I'm more than what just the traumatic event that happened to me, you know. And I started applying little by little, um, you know, the second time didn't work neither, you know, I'm working on just TV. It just didn't work for me, you know. Um And, you know, it just took me a pretty long time because I just wasn't unwilling until one time I remember meeting someone that, um, you know, actually she's still currently working there and, you know, and being able to see through me and being able to tell me, hey, you know, there's other people just like you. I know what's going on, you know, and taking that time and, and just being able to give me that talk when I just felt like just giving up and throwing everything away when I had worked myself through a six month program and being able to start speaking for myself. It took me about seven times actually going back and forth, Um, you know, going back to jail, going back to the program. And, you know, after my seventh time, I believe I just lift up my hands and, you know, I cried, I cried in that office and I gave up and, you know, And that's when I finally said, look, you know, like, I'm a, I'm a C6 survivor, you know, Um, it's very shameful, especially in that type of community, because, you know, not a lot of people hear about human trafficking, as much as we say that we're putting, you know, giving information and putting the human trafficking, there's not a lot of information, not a lot enough, you know, for some survivors, especially when they come through the, you know, um, being going through jail and stuff, you know. So being in the program, I was given an opportunity to grow. I was, you know, um, given an opportunity to learn some skills to apply um, from, you know, being, um, you know, exploring, being uh, working in the kitchen, from working in the bakery to working data entry and working DV, being the, um, you know, running groups, um, parenting, domestic violence, and, um, you know, being able to just obtain and giving the opportunity that while I'm in the program, being able to um, do internships at other places where I'm able to, you know, kind of see myself growing in these or other organizations um, and being able to come back and applying some of the stuff that I've learned in other organizations and putting it into, incorporating it into the Homeboy Program for other you know, other people like myself that are coming through to be able for them to apply it to themselves. Um, so it took me some time, but um, you know what I got in from this whole program was how coming from the same lifestyle, um, the gang lifestyle, being able to mentor each other, being able to hold each other's hand, um, and know that sometimes there are going to be good times and sometimes there are going to be bad times and. Just being able to empower one another and understanding and, and, you know, um, being able to have a better outcome than what society has seen as a certain way. And that we're more than just being gang members. We're more than just being women, being in, um, you know, these relationships where we're just constantly getting beat up, being more than just being a human trafficking survivor. Junya, I'm curious
2: listening to you share about how many times you, to use your words, you fell on your face. Um, how You said it took seven tries. Yes. I'm thinking about the times I hear about like human trafficking service programs where if you leave, you can't come back or you're only allowed to leave once or there's like, even if it's not that they have a restriction, it's sort of like the way they talk about, oh, she, you know, they just weren't ready for their healing. And there's a little bit of a condescension or judgment around that kind of needing to kind of like do it on your time and when you're ready. And I'm curious, what did that look like at Homeboys when that made you feel like you could go back after falling on your face? Like what did they do that made it feel safe and welcoming to come back to?
3: Being able to just walk on those doors and them understanding. Being able to understand one another and understanding that we're not all perfect and we're gonna make mistakes. Um, And allowing me to make those mistakes because every mistake I made has allowed me to grow every time and see things a little bit different.
1: It seems like a better, like a, a more accurate understanding of what healing looks like, that it's not a straight line. It's not linear. It's often, there's a cycle there and we all are going through our own cycles, however many number of times, but that just seems like a really healthy way to view healing.
3: Definitely. It's just as, you know, when we leave our traffickers, We, you know, for myself, I went back a couple of times, you know, um, the reason why, because I didn't know nothing else than my biological mother. I kept going back. I didn't know no one else other than the street life, the gang life, you know, that I've learned to adapt to that mentality and stuff, you know, it's just the same way coming in through the doors, you know, being in a program, you know, anti-trafficking movement, it's allowing us to make our mistakes and understand that, you know, we're going to make mistakes just like any other regular human being is going to make mistakes. We're not perfect, but being able to work with each other and understanding each other and empowering each other and keeping each other, you know, um, you know, just allowing us to see that, you know, hey, you made this mistake. This is not going to work, you know, giving me that option and that opportunity to see that and be able to move from that, you know. Yeah.
2: I love um, that you mentioned how, like, everybody does that. I think one of the things, like, in my day job where I mentor survivors who are working in the movement, a a complaint we hear sometimes when we do interviews with them to get their feedback is that sometimes survivors' healing journeys are under the microscope in a way that um, other staff and leaders who um, are not human trafficking survivors, they're not held to that same standard. So. Um, You know, they're like, oh, if you're, if you have a survivor, they have to attend this, and they have to be X amount of time out from a trauma, and they can't have done X, Y, or Z in the past few years, and I'm like, you're, all of us have been through some stuff and are navigating life, and sometimes we're busy, and People may have survived other kinds of trauma that they're navigating, and yet we don't put them under the same spotlight that we do people that we've put the survivor leader hat on. And like, there's not as much grace around being messy, like being a human um, for survivors
1: is That's such a good point, Chris. And I think that really stands out to me about Homeboy's model is so many of the programs are led by people with similar lived experiences. It's not, um, I think you might've shared in a previous conversation that like, you know, 90% or something of the actual staff are people who've gone through similar lived experience. And so that has a huge impact on how then the services are carried out and the amount of judgment or lack of judgment that then is placed on people come like new coming through the program or people who are coming in and out, you know, on their own kind of healing timeline. And I think really speaks to like Dunya that what you were saying about the sense of community and support that you then receive from that type of staff and program that, you know, the majority of of people there are sharing similar experiences and are at whatever point in their journey, but but get it and have a lot more empathy for for where each other where you're all at we could definitely serve to bring that model more into the anti-trafficking space and i think it, you know if our li- listeners aren't kind of understanding why we're talking about homeboys so much it's like okay we often talk about maybe problems in the anti-trafficking space but to instead or to then focus on like okay well what's the solution and seeing this model that already exists in kind of a in a tangential way um i think just talking about that model even more to then inspire folks in the anti-trafficking space like hey here are solutions here are ways that we could serve survivors better that are already out there just bringing it into this this space If you want to make an impact with Dressember but aren't ready to commit to wearing a dress or tie for a month, you can still fight the devastating issue of human trafficking. Make a one-time donation to help support prevention work, interventions, and survivor empowerment worldwide. Join the movement by donating today at dressember.org slash donate.
0: Yes. And if we see that Homeboys does an incredible job of, like, mitigating harm within their programming against survivors by those they are serving, by having people with lived experiences that are similar to those who they are serving lead these programs, as well as viewing healing as a cyclical journey and one that is not linear. Um, I'm really glad that we have that model to look at. And I would love if Dunia and Chris, you both can share how we can also mitigate harm to survivor leaders in the anti-trafficking movement um, with homeboys as a source of inspiration um, with this emphasis on inclusivity and respect.
2: I know one thing that's interesting to me, just, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, I know um, at CAST, the Coalition to Abolish Slavery and Trafficking, um, our survivor leadership program is currently working with our researcher on staff. Um, to do semi-structured interviews with survivor leaders who've experienced harm um, from the anti-trafficking movement and from their involvement as leaders. And so we're, we're developing some research to sort of capture common themes and make recommendations. So um, that's in process. But one of the things that comes up a lot is the economic um, harm, where a lot of times survivors are asked to share their stories or to just take a look at this document for me. And, um, it's assumed that they'll give their time cause they want to help others. We had a survivor that we interviewed for our research who said that the anti-trafficking or she was working with actually said, I, I can tell you're one of the good survivors cause you're not in it for the money while they were not paying her for use of her story and time. And, um, I know when I was in Los Angeles, Dunya took me on a tour of homeboys and that was super cool to get to actually go on a tour and see how, it's a, it's a compound y'all. It, they do so much stuff. Um, but what I loved is that it wasn't services or economic and job training. It was like a balance of earning money and building job skills while getting the other kinds of services you need. Um, and and so I was thinking about that as Dunya was sharing about, like, everybody working there. Like, they work there. There's income, right? Am I right? Like, how do they balance that working and services? Because that's something I think anti-trafficking orgs could think about, is that someone's not out there earning money while they're in your program. <laughs> they're not, like, filling their resume. They're not, like, building their actual on-the-ground skills. How do they balance that, Dunya?
3: So, you know, this is, like... You know, this is the best part of homeboys, right? Because they give us the option to choose, right? Are we there just for a paycheck or are we there to actually work on ourselves? Do we want to continue living the lifestyle that we're living? You know, and I mean, you could go through the 18 program and not go to not one meeting. You know, but they allow us to have that option to be able to attend. So, you know, we could go all day, our our whole eight hours. We could attend meetings if we want to. You know, and I mean, eventually, it's going to show in our growth and what we do with ourselves. You know, um, but um, you know, they give us that option and those opportunities that come after our options. You know, which is you know being able to take an internship and stuff. You know, or you know, we could just stay there and work. And you know and come back, you know, and keep coming back until we actually understand that we got to work on ourselves in order for us to get anywhere.
2: Yeah. And I love that because I think one of the other harms we hear about sometimes is like tokenizing or kind of getting shoved into a one size fits all approach. And sometimes, and that's the truth for like services, but also for leadership. Um, And so um, that's something that, that I was thinking of as I was hearing you is, it's not a one-size-fits-all. Like, some people have different skills. Some people have different needs. And I think about that with survivors. Like, a lot of... In, in some research, I know the, the Modern Slavery Policy and Evidence Center, which Dunia was one of the experts who um, I interviewed for this study, um, but they're putting out um, a document very soon on best practices for survivor engagement. So how do we, how do we make sure we're developing programming Um, development and implementation of program and policy with survivors instead of just for them. And um, one of the things that came up a lot in that was when people ask you about becoming a survivor leader, it's like, do you want to do policy? Or actually, it's like, do you want to do peer support in which you tell your story to other survivors to give them hope? Do you want to do storytelling in which you tell your story for fundraising and or public awareness, or do you want to do policy in which you tell your story to get legislators to create policy? Like it all, even though it's peer support, storytelling, and policy, they're all storytelling. And so um, I think that that like one-size-fits-all approach is hard because then survivors who either don't want to do storytelling, don't know about other ways. Like, I I feel like it would be a super wonderful ethical way to reduce harm, to be able to say, it sounds like you want to be a survivor leader. We have this option, which involves sharing your story. And we also have two other options where you don't have to share your story. And that way survivors don't feel that economic need is going to determine their willingness to share their story, right? Um, Because if the only option they're given is Tell your story and get paid, or nothing.
3: <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: They're they're not really dealing with meaningful options. Whereas if you're like, we can have you share a story um, at an event or whatever, and we could prepare you for that and help you deal with um, what that might look like and what you might need, or we could have you review our end of year impact report. <laughs> to give us some feedback about that. Which one feels right to you? And then that survivor can really make a choice because the other thing that came up in the the Modern Slavery Policy and Evidence Center research was almost every survivor who we interviewed, their perspectives on storytelling had changed over time to either being negative or having mixed feelings about it. Um, nobody who started out feeling good about storytelling ended up feeling positive about storytelling. They either had gone to a negative perspective. I wish I'd had more preparation. I wish someone had told me there were other ways to get engaged. I wish I'd had better options. I wish I'd done more healing first. They either had changed to a negative or to just being kind of complex about it and being like, well, I guess there's some policies that have been in place, but boy, that was hard and I wasn't prepared.
1: That came up in another conversation like all the implications that maybe so many of us would never consider of sharing an incredibly personal story like like your experience of trauma then impacting your dating life for years to come because we all cyber stalk each other before we go on dates right and it Im- impacting your employment opportunities or the way that your coworkers or future bosses might see you because they all google you know, Google you. And so all of those things that like the implications broader than what we might expect in, you know, the initial telling of our story. And so, yeah, probably part of what you meant by like, I I wish I had been better prepared is understanding what the impact of sharing that story would be in all these other facets of my life for years and years to come with the internet. And, you know, I think something that now that we're like five or six conversations into this series, i am kind of wondering um if listeners are going to be surprised by the fact that i think in every conversation so far we haven't had any of our guests share their stories it's been like let's speak to kind of broader insights on the movement and and how things can change for the better and I'm glad that that's the case. I mean, we certainly don't want people sharing their story if it's not a truly empowering experience for them in a continual capacity, but I also think it's really a good challenge to our audience that hey, this is not um maybe the healthiest expectation to have of survivors mm. that we historically have had that like, oh, we're going to get to hear from these survivors, so that means we're going to get to hear their story and how how strange that actually is to have that mindset and how kind of consumerist it is in a way. And so I'm actually really excited about that, but I wonder if we'll get any feedback.
0: But at the same time, I have found that when our guests have shared any elements of their story, it's been from this empowered place where they want to offer insight as an expert on a topic they're sharing about, like it's attached to a lesson about Aftercare services that they did or did not receive, or what it was like to be re victimized and why these things happened, or what intersectional vulner- vulnerabilities did they experience, and what uh, biases did they come up against in oppressive systems that caused them to be vulnerable to trafficking. So it, it has been really interesting the way that that's played out. And, Chris, another thing. That you brought up that I really appreciate, which has been a theme of our conversations as well, is how critical choice is when it comes to primary employment for survivors. Um, When we're talking about true autonomy and true freedom, like you absolutely need the freedom of choice to say, you know, I feel empowered when I share my story. I'd like to educate the public about the realities of human trafficking so that um, better programs can be developed or more funding can be ensured for these programs. Or I absolutely in no way want folks to know about my story because it's highly re-traumatizing every time I tell it. And I would really just like to run your operations (laughs) for your organization, because that is a way that's really meaningful to participate in the anti-trafficking movement or to say, you know, I actually have always had a dream of becoming a cosmetologist. So I am having a real barrier to access to funds. So can I apply to scholarships so that I can just go get my cosmetology license? Like there's, there's so much behind why choice is really important for survivors when it comes to their sustained liberation and long-term freedom. So I'm really grateful that you brought that up.
1: And like choice within the programs themselves. I mean, the fact that like, you don't have to go to at home boys, you don't have to go to a program to work there or vice versa, like that you have autonomy. It's like you're being treated as a human being, as an adult, like you can choose how, where you want to spend your time and what's going to be most beneficial to you. And it seems like a more integrated approach. Like you don't have to pause your whole life to be going, to be receiving services. And you also get to pursue a number of different growth opportunities, professional growth opportunities. Cause I think when there are sort of these like economic empowerment programs at some anti-trafficking orgs, they're like, you know, one size fits all. Like we've talked about like, oh, we're going to teach you all how to make candles, or we're going to teach you all how to knit scarves. And, um, it just doesn't, that's not a very empowering and ultimately like humanizing way of approaching anyone's vocational journey and ultimately economic independence and financial stability.
2: That was one of the things that struck me because I've worked in past, past jobs. I've worked in food service and restaurants and grocery stores. And some of the pieces that were just like really interesting for me to learn were like, not just front end things where you're the one doing the, the, the front end visible work, but even things like how do you manage inventory like, how do you know what to order if you're running a bakery? Like, I know Dunya, didn't you say you ran the bakery at some point? Yes. Yeah. How do you know how to make sure you have the supplies? Like, people then learn not just like I'm baking the goods, but someone fancier than me places the orders and knows what we need. It's like that's part of your learning is like management and supervision, too. Did you want to share a little about that, Dunya? Like, some of the supervisor skills?
3: Um, yeah, definitely. So before getting a role, um, on the supervisor, what it's funny because as soon as you said that, I just remember when I had to, you know, beat the dough and, you know, I started like that, you know what I'm saying? Making cakes and the pastries and, you know, um, they kept seeing that talent that I wasn't able to see on myself. Right. Um, so the more they moved me up, the more I started believing in myself, you know, um, because I, I, for me, it's like all I knew it was just a three mile radius. You know what I'm saying? I've never seen myself outside more of being the baker. But a supervising position for me, that was something big. It was something so big that I self-sabotaged it, you know, because I didn't know how to receive that. I didn't know how to keep it. How am I going to maintain it? You know, Um so it was a lot. And, you know, even when coming back, I worked myself again to the same position, but different, you know, not the bakery, the cafe now, you know, and it was like, okay, I do deserve it. If they, if, if someone else could see that I had the capability of being a supervisor, why not? You know, why 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 can I see myself? What's really going on? You know, um, and 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 understanding and being able to you know, um, have someone show me how to maintain that position to show me the skills and, you know, computer quick, quick and, and, you know, how to order. And I already had the experience because I know exactly what dough I needed for each pastry. So I already knew that, you know, so starting from, you know, baking to all the way to supervisor, it was like, it's a lot. It's a, it's, it had been a great experience for me to get a position like that. And that's something, speaking about
2: the, the harm that you brought up earlier, Stephanie, is, you know, a lot of survivors are like, when we get employed, it's in like the lowest rung and there's no upward mobility, right? And so then they get burnt out and they left and they struggle and like, Dunya, I didn't realize, you just brought up another thing, is sometimes when we do get that mobility, we're like, I don't deserve this. I still feel that sometimes in my job. I'm like, why is anybody listening to me? This is weird. Um, But we tend to, like, not feel like we belong in those positions or like we deserve them and then sabotage. And I just realized how different that must be to be able to have that experience while you're still in that supportive program and still connected to them. Rather than being like, now you've made enough scarves and you're going to go out and be successful in whatever you do, and then you you end up having that self sabotage while you're already thinking, "Well, I'm supposed to be out now on my own." Like that seems like a really a much more supportive place to kind of have the opportunities to to deal with what that feels like to actually start to have things that you're not used to having.
1: Mm, That's such a good point because I think that like imposter syndrome is something most of us deal with or, you know, come up against. And so coming up against that with also the burden of lived experience that might also like double confirm that, or like, you know, really add weight to that, but then being able to have the support surrounding you while you're going through something very, like otherwise normal and human, but nonetheless really hard. And, um, that's, that's super powerful.
3: The compassion. One. I would say that compassion, the compassion that it was always given to me kept, I kept coming back, you know, that love, you know, um, that love in that, that building is just, you know, you feel it, you know, um, and, you know, and, and, and for us, for me, the resilience that I've had of just coming back over and over, you know, knowing that I might fall in my face this time and just knowing that, you know, it's going to be okay.
1: I'm going to make it, you know, so. I love that. Um, Well, our closer question is something we ask all our guests and I would love to pose it to to both of you, Dunia and Chris. Um, If you, if there was one thing that you wish people knew about human trafficking, what would that one thing be?
3: Embrace our stories, but allow us the options to see the opportunities that we create for ourselves that we are more than just our stories. Human trafficking is not exceptional
2: or other or you or special like we've all experienced a lot of different traumas and I know human trafficking is severe and horrific and at the same time, a lot of us have also experienced other severe and horrific things. Um, and sometimes the trafficking isn't the most traumatic or sometimes even the most interesting thing about that survivor's life. Um, and, and so when we exceptionalize trafficking, then when we meet survivors, we're like, ooh, the trafficking. Ooh, you're a real-life trafficking victim. And I'm like, yes. And I also danced the twist on stage with Chubby Checker when I was 16, like, there's so much more about me and so much more about Dunya that is fun and complex. And we, when we get all wrapped up in human trafficking, just this this exceptionalism of human trafficking, we end up inadvertently exoticizing and othering and dehumanizing survivors who, just like you, have complex experiences and desires and needs, and are probably really, really funny if you stop othering them long enough to let them be
0: themselves. Mm, Wow. Yeah. Thank you both for sharing that. I think, or I hope that something our listeners take away from this conversation is that there is so much more to survivors of trafficking than their stories. That is not the only reason to seek them out. It is not um what they are here to do for us (laughs) like that is such a twisted uh way of looking at things so I'm glad that we explored that in depth and I learned so much from this conversation um I'm really excited to listen back to it and you know meditate on some of the things that we discussed and just so appreciative for both of your time and for sharing your expertise thank you thank you so much this was wonderful
1: Agreed. Thank you, guys.
0: Thanks for listening to Things Survivors Wish You Knew, a Dressember podcast. We are all needed in the fight against human trafficking. And Dressember is here to equip and empower you to advocate for the dignity of all people. We host a style challenge every December where people pledge to wear a dress or tie for 31 days. The style challenge provides a fun, impactful way for even the busiest person to engage in this important issue. And it's proven to be a powerful way to raise awareness and vital funding for anti-trafficking work. Since 2013, thousands of advocates have raised roughly $16 million to fight human trafficking from every angle around the world. This year is the 10th anniversary of the Dressember Style Challenge, and we need your advocacy to help make our biggest impact to date. You can join the Dressember community in the fight against human trafficking at dressember.org fundraise, or learn more at dressember.org slash howitworks. And remember, it's bigger than a dress.